Well, hi, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see all of you. Uh, I want to open up our time in a word of prayer. Okay, we'll just begin that way, and then we'll uh, get into the message. Well, Father, thank you so much. It is, uh, it is so good to be here today. And Lord, here's my prayer, that, that every single person here would leave different, that this church that is gathered here this morning would be a different church after we're done today. And I pray, God, that in every way you would continually work in our hearts, in my heart, that we would become, that I would become the man you want me to be, that, that we as a people would become the people you want us to be. So, God, I invite you to do a mighty work in our presence today. And I add, again, I ask that you would speak, and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, first, I want to just say what an absolute uh, thrill and joy and privilege it has been for me to be with you these last few weeks. And so I, I believe that I am on the schedule to be back here one final time. It'll be Sunday, uh, March 24th. And uh, I particularly want to encourage you to invite your friends and family, especially if they don't know Jesus, uh, to that service because I plan to, to make a presentation of the gospel. I think you'll really find it interesting um, just talking about how Jesus is Lord, all right? Actually, I'll, I'll tell you the message is called um, Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. Was Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord? And I think that it'll really speak to especially somebody who's kind of on the fence about uh, who is Jesus. So that's the 24th. I'll be back with you for that. You know, as I uh, thought about what I wanted to share with you today, I actually thought long and hard about, about this. I decided to go kind of in a, the very last minute, kind of in a, in a different direction. <clears throat> and um, what I wanted to share with you was just some of the best practices that have, have really blessed us at, at our church, at South Bay Community Church, blessed our people and our church. And, and my prayer is that you would learn from the, the things that I share with you today and that it will serve you well, serve you as believers and serve you as a church just as it has served us well. Um, and so I suppose you can call this message Lessons of a Retired Church Planter. And as you know, uh, if you've been here um, when I've spoken, I, I, I pastored a church that I founded, um, and I did that for about 30 years. And so I have an idea of what it takes to start a church. And I say that because you're a church plant, and you, I, I believe you've been here for around six years. But um, here's what I know. It's not easy. It's not easy to, to get here early and to set up because we did that for six years. We met in a community center. We started with 15 people, and we met in a community center. We did church out of a truck. We had to show up every Sunday morning early and take everything out of the truck and set everything up. We didn't have a, a, a facility like this, and we had to lay down our own carpet. We had to, Back then, we had overhead projectors. We didn't have all these fancy um, gizmos that you have today, and... Um, it was a lot of hard work, and it also came with a lot of heartbreak and heartache. Um, we, at the time I started the church, I was single. Everybody on our team was single except for one couple. We had one married couple, and I married them, and uh, we didn't have any children when we started the church. We started a children's ministry, but we didn't have any children come because we didn't have any kids, and... Um, the community center, we would come in on Sunday morning, it would often reek of cigarettes and beer from the luau's and the parties that they would have the night before. And in our 30-plus year history, we met in a half a dozen 
different churches. We met at a park. We met at a hotel. We met at the Holiday Inn for three and a half years. Um, we, we met at, uh, we had services at a high school, North High School. We met in Torrance High School. Uh, we met in a storage facility. And even today, we're in a building that we share with an animal hospital and a different storage company. And you know why people came? The reason why people came was because we weren't defined by where we met. We were defined by who we were, right? We weren't defined by where we met because the church isn't a building. We were defined by who we were because the church is a family. That's what the church is. We're a family. You know, when the Apostle Paul wrote, this, wrote his letter to the, book of, uh, to the church at Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, you're familiar with it, he had the Gentiles in mind. Gentile was anyone who wasn't a Jew. And he had them, them in mind because most of the early Christians were, were Jews. And then as the gospel was preached to the Gentiles, Gentiles began coming to know Christ, um, the Greeks and the Romans, whoever. They started coming to know Christ. And so here's what the Apostle Paul said to them in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. I'm going to put all the verses up here for you. And uh, if you had a pad of paper, it would be great to take some notes. But Ephesians 2.19, Paul said this, So then you, speaking of the Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now note the last phrase. You are members of the household of God. The Greek word for household is oikeo, and, and it means family. So in other words, you are now family. And I like the NLT translation. I'll put that up here for you. It says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. And so you see right there, the church is a family. I mean, you may be a Jew. You may, be not, you may not be a Jew. You may be a Gentile. You may be African. You may be Asian. You may be Caucasian. But if you have Christ, you are family. You are all part of the same family, and we share the same family. Heavenly Father, and that's the church. See, the church, and I would add this, the church is not one man. The church is not a board. South Bay Community Church is not Gary's church. It is our church. Savior is your church. And um, the church is every man, woman, and child who is a believer in Jesus. And that's what defined us, and the same is true for you. That's what defines you. You're a family. And I would just say, if you consider Savior Community Church to be your home church, your family, then I want to encourage you to give yourselves fully to each other, not to an institution, not to an organization, not to a board, not to a, a pastor, but give yourself fully to one another, to love one another, to encourage one another, to care for one another, to pray for one another, all the, all the one another's that you're familiar with. And so that's lesson one that I just wanted to share with you, that the church is a family. Now, there was a period in our history when we were homeless for about three and a half years. Um, we lost our lease, and so we didn't know where we were going to meet, and that's when we were able to find some, we had a, we have Saturday night service, we found some churches, different churches to meet on Saturday night, and then the Holiday Inn agreed to let us meet at, at their place. Um, for three and a half years, and it was during this time, because we were homeless, we were looking for a, a more permanent home, I, I found myself not only 
having to lead the church, but I had to lead a whole new um, effort to move, a building campaign, because I knew that it would cost a lot of money to get into a facility. If you ever decide to get out of the school and get to your own facility, someone's going to need to lead a building campaign because it's going to take a lot of money to move in to a new facility. And so I was doing that, and it was during this time. And, you know, we were trying to raise a couple million dollars, and, you know, we, we, we were probably at around 250 people at the time. Um, the economy was really bad, and I just hit a wall. I just hit this huge wall. And um, night after night, for more than three months, I battled insomnia. I couldn't sleep. Um, I had anxiety in the worst way. I began to have panic attacks. I had no idea. I would just start to freak out. Um, sometimes I wouldn't fall asleep till 6 a.m. in the morning. And again, I would start to have all these panic attacks. Uh, I, I would keep thinking, I'm going to die for lack of sleep and all these things. And so I went to see my doctor. And so he prescribed some meds. He said, this is for depression, but it'll help your anxiety. And I would pop a pill, and it wouldn't help. And that night, I'd still have anxiety. And I said, this one doesn't work. And so he prescribed me another one, and I tried that one, and that one didn't work. And then he prescribed a different one, and I tried that one, and that didn't work. I had so many, I had so many different meds, I could have started my own pharmacy. No kidding. I could have started my own pharmacy. And again, I thought, I thought I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become addicted. I'm going to become addicted to, to these, these, you know, these, these medications and uh, prescription medications, or I'm going to die from lack of sleep. And that only fed my anxiety. I became even more anxious, thinking I was going to become addicted to all these meds. And when you can't sleep in the middle of the night, it's 3 or 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and nothing helps, you feel all alone. My wife's sound asleep next to me, but I can't wake her up because she needs to sleep. I felt so alone. I was so discouraged. And um, I was desperate. Have you ever felt desperate? I'm sure you have. Um, you know what I learned about desperation? That there's a special place in the Bible for desperate people. Did you know that? I love that. There's a special place in the Bible for desperate people. For example, most of you know the story of Jonah, right? Now, m probably you think that, okay, the story of Jonah, high point of the story of Jonah is that he was swallowed by a big fish, not a whale, it says, but a big fish, and he lived to tell about it. Now, I have to admit, that's a, that's a high point in that story. But I think the real highlight of the story of Jonah is that this guy was desperate. He was desperate. Listen to how he prayed as he sloshed around inside the belly of that fish. Jonah 2, chapter, uh, verse 1 and 2. I'll put it up here for you. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. All right, now, he referred, first of all, to the belly of the fish. He's in the belly of this fish, right? He's inside there, and he referred to it as Sheol, which, which means, in Hebrew, it means the pit. I mean, he, this was the pits. I mean, he was in the pit. And Sheol is also a, a reference to a place of the dead. And that's, and it was only a matter of moments before Jonah would be, either from drowning in all that salt water or from suffocation of being in this enclosed place. 
I mean, he was, he was um, in a bad way. Now, here's what I want you to notice. I want, and I we'll highlight this for you. He called out to the Lord, right? He called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he also cried. It says, he cried, and he heard my voice. So he, he called, and he cried out to the Lord in desperation. The Hebrew word for called is kara, kara, and it, and it means to utter a loud sound. That's what it means, kara. You don't get that by reading this. It just says called, but you don't know what it really, what it really means is it means to, to cry out in a loud voice, an, a loud sound. And then the Hebrew word for cried is shavah. It means to shout for help. It doesn't say he shouted for help. It just says that he cried, right? So that's why it's important to, to look at the Hebrew words from time to time. So you have these two different words in Jonah 1, kara and shava, and they both expressed desperation, utter desperation. In other words, Jonah is in the belly of this fish, and he didn't pray this silent prayer like, he didn't pray demurely like, oh, Jesus, please get me out of this place. Oh, Jesus, uh, I'm in this place, and it's kind of sloshing around, and I might, I might suffocate, and I'm going to die. And, and would you just move me out of this place? No, that's, not ex- that's exactly what he didn't do. He was desperate. He karad. He, he shavad. I mean, he screamed. He prayed in a loud voice with a sense of, which conveyed a sense of urgency about his situation. He shouted out his prayer. Can you imagine what it must have sounded like? He's inside the belly of this fish. And I don't want to scare the kids, but God help me. Right? God, get me out of here. I I can only imagine that's probably what he did. Now, why did he shout? Well, it's not because God is hard of hearing. Right? God's not hard of hearing. I recently heard about a a husband who spoke to his doctor, went to his doctor and said, Hey, doc, you know, I'm so concerned about my wife. You know, I think she's going deaf. Because she, she's always asking me to repeat things, and she can't seem to hear what I'm saying. And so the doctor says, well, there's an easy fix. You've got to figure out how bad her hearing is, all right? So when you go home, he says, what you want to do is stand about 15 feet behind her and say something to her, right? And if she doesn't reply, then you move five feet forward, five feet closer, and you say it again. And if she still doesn't hear it, you get closer five feet, and you say it again. And then if she doesn't hear it, then you get right into her face, and you say it again. He says, okay, I'll do that. So he got home. His wife was chopping some vegetables in the kitchen, getting dinner ready. And he says to his wife, honey, what's stood 15 feet away from her? Honey, what's for dinner? No reply. Five, move five feet closer. Honey, what's for dinner? No reply. Move five feet closer. Honey, what's for dinner? And he finally got right in her face and said, honey, what's for dinner? And she says to him, for the fourth time, we're having stew. <laughs> you see, it's the guys that can't hear, right? That's what my wife would say. You know, it's so good to know God isn't hard of hearing. God isn't hard of hearing. Is Jonah didn't shout because God was hard of hearing. He shouted because he was desperate. He was desperate. We see also the sense of desperation in Hannah's prayer. I told you there's a special place for desperate people in the Bible. Hannah was desperate. Hannah was one of two wives married to a man named Elkanah. His other, uh, his other wife's name was Penina, and, and, they had, and she had children, but Hannah didn't. Now, FYI, back in, in the day, it was common for men to have more than one wife, all right? So that's why he had more than one wife. 
And because Hannah was childless, the other wife, Penina, Penina, um, constantly picked on her, you know, just like picked on her and and bullied her, belittled belittled her. Well, every year, Elkanah and Hannah and Penina and and her children, they would travel to the city of Shiloh there in Israel to make sacrifices to God. See, back then, before the temple of God was erected in Jerusalem, um, God's God would meet with his people in, in this tent called the tabernacle. It was located in Shiloh. So every year they would go to Shiloh. It was kind of like, I suppose it was like a vacation. Hey, we're all going to go together, right? And we're all going to make sacrifices to God. Well, every time they went together, Penina looked at it as an opportunity to bully Hannah. I mean, she would just continue to pick on her, and, and, that's, and she just let her have it. Well, one day, Hannah just cried and cried and cried cried, bawled her eyes out because um, up to the point where she couldn't even eat because she, she felt so, so bad. Take a look at 1 Samuel 1, 7. It's so, it's, so it says, so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. I mean, it was just a horrible situation. H- Hannah was hurt and all she could do was cry and, and cry her eyes out because, because of the way Penina made her feel. You know, she made her feel worthless. And for a Hebrew woman, uh, not to be able to have children, that was kind of the worst thing because they were expected to have children. That's why you're, you're here. You're supposed to have children, right? If you couldn't bear children, then you were considered worthless. And that's how Hannah felt. And she couldn't take the abuse anymore and the hurt any longer. You know what she did? 1 Samuel 1.9. It says, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. What did she do? She was desperate. She prayed and she prayed with tears just pouring down her face. Hebrew word for, for uh, wept bitterly is baka. And it literally means to weep intensely or grievously, to weep t- intensely or grievously, or, or to weep aloud. I mean, just, just sob. This was sobbing and this was wailing. This one just little sniffles like, <laughs> no, this was just like, <gasps> that's the kind of weeping it was. She didn't hold anything back because she was desperate. And you know what happened as a result of her desperation? 1 Samuel 1.20 says, And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Isn't that great? Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel. And get this, this is so cool. I didn't know this, but you may not know this, but the name Samuel comes from two different Hebrew words, Shama which means to hear, and El, which is the name of God. You put the two together, Shama El, you get Samuel, and it means God has heard. That's his name. Isn't that cool? And that's such a great little thing. And you can take that to the bank every single day, that God hears you. God hears you. And there's only one prayer that God can't hear. Did you know that? There's one prayer that God can't hear. And it's the prayer that's never prayed. 
God can't hear the prayer that's never prayed. Mark Batterson, Pastor Mark Batterson put it this way, and I, I love this quote. He put it, put it up here for you. He said, 100% of the prayers you don't pray won't get answered. Isn't that deep? 100% of the prayers you don't pray won't get answered. James put it this way. He said, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not what? Ask. You don't have because you don't ask. So let me ask you something. What don't you have because you haven't asked? What don't you have because you haven't prayed? Are you trying to start a family? Have you prayed about it? Do you want to get married, but you can't find anyone even to date? Have you prayed about it? Are you looking for a job? Do you want God to heal your marriage? Uh, do you want your parents to come to know Christ? Are you battling some type of addiction? Um, are you suffering from an insomnia or anxiety or depression? Loneliness? The list goes on, right? Then pray. Desperately pray. Going back to the time I was struggling with insomnia and anxiety, it was another long night. It was around 3 a.m. I was still awake. My wife sound asleep, and I was still awake. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're up at that hour, you feel like you're the only one up at that hour, right? You feel like you're all alone. So I opened up my phone, and I opened up my Facebook page, and I noticed a little green dot next to Brian's name. I go, hey, Brian's up. So I just sent him a quick little hello on Facebook Messenger. Hey, hi, how's it going? And then he responded quickly. He says, why are you up so late? And then I told him I, I was battling insomnia and anxiety. And um, it's been going on for months. And I said, and, then, and you know what he said right away? He says, I'm going to pray for you. He says, I'll pray for you. And I just said, hey, thank you so much. I appreciate that. But he didn't just tell me he was going to pray for me. You know what he did? He actually prayed for me. Right then and there, he prayed for me. He, he typed out a prayer and sent it to me. In fact, I was so moved by it, I saved it. Here's what it said. Right now, I lift up Gary to you. I plead before you to let him get over his insomnia and anxiety. I don't know if it's just a natural thing or if it's an attack, but I rebuke it now in the name of Jesus. There is none like you. Amen. That was his prayer. Not deep, not profound, just very simple and very heartfelt, and I read this prayer, and I can't even begin to tell you at 3 o'clock in the morning how much it encouraged me. Now, I didn't fall asleep right away, and I would just keep going back, and I would keep reading that prayer, and it just encouraged me to have my name lifted up before the King of Kings, to have my name brought before Almighty God, the God of the universe, bless my heart so much that what Brian did for me that evening, that morning, changed, began to change the way I approach prayer and the way we approach prayer at our church, which can be summed up in this axiom. And I'll put the axiom up before you, and it's this. Don't tell someone you're going to pray for them. Pray for them. All right? Don't tell somebody you're going to pray for them. Pray for them. You might want to take a picture of that. We can leave it up there for a few, few minutes here. When a friend texts you and tells you that they're going to have a job interview this week, don't tell them you're going to pray for them. Pray for them. Text them back a prayer immediately. 
right? When someone tells you at church, maybe someone's going to tell you this today at church, hey, I'm having surgery tomorrow. Don't tell them you're going to pray for them. Just pray for them right then and there. If someone tells you, oh, our baby's due sometime this week, or if someone tells you that they, just, they were just diagnosed with cancer, or my mom was just diagnosed with cancer, or someone tells you they're struggling with infertility, or someone tells you that they're struggling with depression or anxiety, or someone tells you um, that they're having a big test this week. Don't tell them you're going to pray for them. Just pray for them right then and there. Just come to them. Just put your hand on, on Sam's shoulder and just start praying for him. You know, we started doing this, and it really changed the way um, our church approaches prayer. Um, it, it, is, it is not uncommon if you come to our church to see people all over the lobby just huddled up in little groups. You're having conversations, and something comes up. Well, let me just pray for you. I got a bunch of text messages last night from people saying, hey, I'm praying for you, and then they write out the prayer. And I can't tell you how encouraging it is uh, to read that prayer. And so we call it on-the-spot prayer, on-the-spot prayer. And what, what's so cool about on-the-spot prayer is that it drives home the notion that, that there is an element of desperation to prayer. The prayer can't wait. It's got to be done right away. You got to come to God right away, right? So that's lesson number two. Pray desperately, Savior Community Church. Pray on the spot. In fact, today, before you leave, pray for someone. Just say, John, hey, I want to I just pray for you right now. God, will you just give John a great week? You know, I, I think he's traveling this week. Will you protect him and keep him safe and watch over his family while he's away? With all this crazy weather going on, uh, keep, keep him safe. Just keep him safe in everything that he does. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you think, if you talk to somebody else and they're going through somebody, don't tell them, okay, I'll pray for you. No, no, no. Just stop what you're doing and go over and just pray for them. So I encourage you today. And not just today. But every day, every time you see somebody, just, just pray for them. I, I, I even do this with strangers sometimes. And I can't tell you just how, how, uh, how mind-blowing it has been to do that. And then to have people pray for me, I, I tell you, it's been the greatest blessing. You know, one of the darkest places I've ever been to was L.A. County Men's Central Jail. No, I wasn't arrested. Um, but I was invited... Um, to go there because uh, there was a time when I worked for one of the members of the L.A. County Board of Supervisors. And so um, as, a, as a staff person, we get an opportunity to visit all the different county facilities. And so um, I was asked if I'd like a tour of the jail. And I said, sure. So I went. I was uh, assigned a, a sergeant, and he took me through the whole facility. And it was just so eye-opening. And as I said, it's one of the darkest places I've ever been. There's a section in the men's county central jail where they keep the most dangerous and hardened criminals. And um, after we got to that section, um, when we got to that section, I could tell you just the, the spiritual darkness was just palpable. You could just feel it. The presence of, of demons, you could feel it all over the place, the presence of evil. After we walked through that area, 
the sergeant and I got into an elevator. And he said, okay, let me take you to see something else. So we walked into the elevator, small elevator, you know, not big elevator. And while we're waiting for it to go down, another inmate came walking in with another sergeant or another officer. <clears throat> and he was cuffed and shackled. And um, he stood right next to me. And I recognized him immediately. It was this guy right here, Richard Ramirez, famously known as the Night Stalker. Wikipedia describes Ramirez as, quote, an American serial killer, serial rapist, kidnapper, pedophile, and burglar who left satanic symbols at the murder scenes. He claimed to be the devil's right-hand man. And shortly after my encounter with the Night Stalker, um, he was convicted of 13 counts of murder, five counts of attempted murder, and he was sentenced to death here in, in California. Now I found myself literally an arm's length away from him. Tall guy, actually. He's quite tall. And um, standing next to a guy who was the embodiment of, of evil uh, was an experience I'll never forget. I wanted to pull out my fingers and go, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. <laughs> but, you know, I had to act professionally since I was with the, the sergeant. And so... Um, it was the weirdest thing. And then finally, we got off the elevator. It seemed like the elevator ride took forever. And after I exited the elevator, I asked the sergeant, hey, sergeant, where's, where's he going? Where's he being? He, and first of all, the sergeant said to me, you know who that was, right? I go, yeah, I know who that was. I said, where's he going? He said, well, he knew the answer right away. And I was shocked by it. He, he told me that he was being escorted to the visitor center because every week a woman came to the visitor center to meet with him, to read the Bible to him, to share Christ with him, and to pray for him. And I said, you're kidding. I said, does he know this woman? He said, no, he doesn't know her, but she just contacted us, and we contacted him, and he, we had to get his permission. He had to say yes, because you, if, you don't, if you don't want to meet with somebody, you don't have to meet with somebody. And he said, yeah, I would like to meet with her. So every week she comes... Um, to meet with him, and before my tour was over, the sergeant took me to the visitor center, and sure enough, there she was at the table. Across from him was Richard Ramirez, and he had her, she had her Bible open, and she was sharing Christ with him and reading the Bible to him, and I was just floored. I, I just could not believe it. Now, regardless of what you may think about someone like Richard Ramirez going to heaven, I couldn't help but marvel at what this woman did. She took the light of the gospel to a man who was as evil as evil can be, right? Killed 13 plus people. Um, and, and, and why did she do it? Why did she do this? She did it because she knew what would happen to him if he didn't get right with God. She knew it. He would burn in hell. She knew that was his fate if he did not come to know Christ. And so that just, you know, uh, out of that was, uh, uh, out of that experience was birthed the second axiom that I've shared at our church, and it's this. It's not okay for one person to go to hell. It's not okay for one person to go to hell. It's not okay for your spouse to go to hell. It's not okay for any of your children to perish. It's not okay for your mom or your dad or your grandpa or your grandma 
or your uncle or your aunt or any of your cousins. It's not okay for your teacher or your mechanic or your doctor or your neighbor or your friends to go to hell. Yet tragically, that's where most people are headed today into a Christless eternity because they don't know Jesus. And that's not okay. Eight years ago, I um, went on a, trip, a mission trip to Japan. I visited the campus of Shizuoka University uh, there just outside of Tokyo. 10,000 students on that campus. It's not large compared to some of ours, but still 10,000 students. You know what I learned when I was there? I learned about the spiritual temperature, temperature of Shizuoka University, that out of 10,000 students, there are only about 25 Christians on campus. Think about that. I'll put these numbers up here for you. 25 out of 10,000 is a quarter of 1%. That's how many Christians there are on that campus, which means that if Christ had raptured the church at that very moment, 99.75% of the students would have been left behind. They would have been left behind. And in fact, they wouldn't have even known that a rapture occurred. And if you think that's bad, in northern Yemen, the population in northern Yemen is more than eight and a half million people. But let's just, for our purposes, let's just say it's 8 million people. It's where the Houthis are, right? And it is estimated that out of the 8 million people in northern Yemen, there are only about 30 Christ followers. 30 Christ followers out of more than 8 million people. Do the math on that. That is 0.0375% of the population are Christ followers. Or if I can read this to you, 37 and a half thousandths of a percent. That's how many are Christ followers. And if Christ came today, they'd literally all be left behind, except for 30 people. It is heartbreaking to think that all these people that God made in his own image will perish forever and ever and ever. And that's not okay. Because hell is real. Hell is where God isn't. It's the abode of Satan and his demons. Jesus said it's a fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is, going to hell is the worst thing that could ever happen to anyone. The worst thing. You know how, how we freak out when we find out that somebody's got cancer? You find out your mom and dad have cancer? I mean, you pull out all the stops. You'll do whatever it takes to get them to he be healed of cancer. Right? We ought to have that same passion about wanting to keep people out of hell. One of the last things Jesus said to his followers before he ascended into, into heaven is found in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Here's what he said. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, he said. This is Jesus' great commission. These are the church's marching orders. This is what we as a church are supposed to do. This is the king's mandate. This is his edict to us. This is the mission of the church. It is to go and make disciples. Uh, there's no evangelism in heaven, right? The evangelism needs to be done here and now. You know, you weren't born and God didn't create you to take up space. He put us here not just for us, for and no more. He put us here to make disciples. 
of all nations, to move people out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light, no matter where they are or no matter who they are. And the fact is we live in a spiritually dark world where most people around you, most people in Buena Park and in Orange County, in L.A. County, in California, and in the United States don't know Christ. In fact, those numbers just keep going up and up and up. You know, in his autobiography, Franklin, uh, Frank, uh, Benjamin Franklin, I was going to say Franklin Roosevelt, Benjamin Franklin described what life was like in Philadelphia in the 1700s, right? Remember Ben Franklin? Um, he wrote in his autobiography that in Philadelphia in the 1700s, streets were really dark. You can only imagine, right? Streets are really dark. I mean, imagine if there are no street lights, no house lights, no car lights, no flashlights in your neighborhood at night on a moonless night. It would be really dark, right? And that's what, how he described it. it was re- life was really dark, especially on a moonless night in Philadelphia. And so old Ben decided to do something about it. He began a campaign to get people to light the area around their home with a simple little lantern that he designed. This is the lantern. He designed this. had four glass sides with a little chimney on top. And, and all you need to do is light a candle, stick it inside, and hang it on a pole, hang it on a pole, or stick it on a pole outside of your house, and you would have light. So Ben Franklin began to, came up with this idea and tried to persuade people to light the house, just right in front of your house, get one of these little lanterns and stick it out there, put a, put a candle in there, and he says, it'll be amazing. And the people would have none of it. I suppose they love darkness rather than light. They, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. But Ben Franklin was undeterred. He decided, well, you don't want to do it? Well, I'm going to do it. So he got one of his little lanterns, put a candle, stuck a candle inside of it, put it on a pole, put it in front of his house, and it gave off this soft, warm glow. And people across the street and next to him, they would come out and they'd go, wow, look at that. That's really cool. I can actually see. It looked like I can see. You know, I could get to the door without tripping and falling. And, hey, that's really cool. And so the, so the next night, the guy next door to him, he got one of those things and put it up in front of his house. And the guy next to him, he, he got one and he was sick in front of his house. And before you know it, everyone comes out at night and they go, wow, this is amazing. And so before you know it, the whole street where Ben Franklin lived was all lit up. Well, of course, the people on the other streets would hear about it. And they come by and they just go, wow, look at this. This is amazing. This whole street is just kind of lit up. And so they started lighting their houses here and there. And before you know it, the entire city of Philadelphia was all lit up because of this one man. It was amazing. You know, um, this is exactly what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to be the light. I mean, we live in a dark, dark world. And he wants us to be the light. And he, he said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 14, you were the light of the world, he said, speaking metaphorically, right? You people are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, on a pole, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus said, you were the light of the world. Savior Community Church, you were the light of the world. Gary Shihama, you're the light of the world. Go out and tell others about Jesus, just like that woman told Richard Ramirez. So that's the third lesson I want to share with you, that we are the light. 
Now I'll show you some pictures, and we'll wrap it up. Take a look at this picture. Any, any idea where this picture was taken? Any idea where this picture was taken? Chris Tomlin concert? No. Taylor Swift concert, right? Some of, maybe some of you were there, right? You see yourself in that picture? What about, what about this one right here? Where was that taken? Phil Wickham concert? No. It's a college football game. How about this one? There's a big clue on the face of one of the girls in the front row. You see it? Justin Bieber, JB. You see that? This is taken at a Justin Bieber concert. And notice, look on their faces. Look like one girl is just wiping away a tear, right? Finally, you should all get this one, right? All of you should get this one. Take a look. Which one is this? Shout it out. BTS, right? This is BTS at SoFi Stadium. How many of you went to, to see BTS at SoFi Stadium? Did you see me there? No, I'm kidding. I didn't go, right? But, and notice what everyone's doing, right? They all got their hands lifted up, right? They got their hands lifted up. All these events, all these events that I just showed you pictures of were attended by adoring fans who expressed their passion and their love for what they were there for by raising their hands, by screaming at the top of their lungs, and by crying tears of joy. No one had to tell them, okay, we all want you to raise your hands now. We didn't, no one had to tell them, okay, you got to scream now. It was the most natural thing to do. And, and you know what? You've done it. I've done it. When, I, when Shohei was with the Angels, I'd go to the Angel games, and every time he'd hit a home run, I would just get up and just, I'd start screaming. In fact, my daughter, she actually uh, took a, a video of that and posted it on her Instagram. Page. Don't put that up there. I said, well, look at you. Look at Dad. You're so silly. You know, the, well, well, we've all done it, right? Yet, when it comes to the Lord, when it comes to worshiping the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. How passionate are we? How passionate are we? How passionate are you? As you know, the Bible has a lot to say about worship. When the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into English, we talked a little bit about this in my first message, the translators discovered that there are multiple Hebrew words for the word worship. But Rather than translate each word according to its actual definition, the translators, the linguists, decided to make things simple by using the word praise almost across the board. In, a, in the book of Psalms, for example, scholars translated the word worship into the word praise 137 times. Right? The problem with the English word praise is that it doesn't fully convey the breadth and scope and depth of the Hebrew words. Therefore, I want to close by just, and I, and I believe that, that it shortchanges us in our understanding of worship. So I want to close by just telling you about two Hebrew words, all right? There, there are at least six, but I need to cut it short, but just two Hebrew words for the word worship that have been translated into the word praise. And I want to show you what they really mean. First one is Psalm 67. I'll put it up here for you. Psalm 67, 3. And it says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Again, in this verse, the word praise shows up twice. And the Hebrew word for praise 
in this particular verse is yada. I'll spell it out here for it looks like this. If you substitute the word yada for praise, Psalm 67 verse 3 would look like this. It would say, let the peoples yada you. O God, let all the peoples yada you. Now, yada is derived from the Hebrew word yad, which means hand. Okay, it means hand. And thus, yada means to worship or revere with extended hands. That's the actual meaning of the word. I'll put that up here for you. Yada means to worship with extended hands. And we see this type of worship all throughout uh, the Old Testament. David said in Psalm 63, verse 4, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3, verse 41, let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. When King Solomon gathered the people of Israel to dedicate the temple of God, 1 Kings 8, verse 22 says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. It was the most natural thing for them to do because they were, they were worshiping Almighty God. It came naturally. Everyone, it says here, lifted up their hands out of a sense of reverence and awe for God. You see, worshiping with raised hands uh, was not an idea that, or a thought that came from the Pentecostals or the Charismatics. And by the way, I'm neither. I'm not Pentecostal or I'm not Charismatic. At least I wouldn't call myself that. But raising hands in worship has been, has been going on since the beginning of time, all the way back to Solomon and Jeremiah and probably even before. The second Hebrew word, first is yada, second one is halal. And we see this one in Psalm 150, verse 6. It says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And again, this is not, this word here is not yada, it's halal. Again, there's the word praise, appears twice, but it's halal. Halal appears 96 times in the Old Testament. And halal means to celebrate or to shine or to boast. You can put that up here for if you want to write it down. It means to shine uh, or celebrate, shine, or boast. And it carries with it the idea of worshiping in such a way as to look foolish. That's kind of the idea, to worship in, in a way as to look foolish. Halal is where we get the word hallelujah. Hallelujah is, is made up of two Hebrew words, halal, to celebrate, shine, or boast, and yah, and Yah is, a sh- is short for Yahweh. We sang that this morning. Yahweh is the personal name of God. And when you put halal and Yah together, you get hallelujah, which literally means to celebrate God or to shine the spotlight on God in such a way as to look foolish. Halal is like these Biola fans. How many of you went to Biola? Look at all these co- crazy Biola fans. I mean, they're so, they're so fanatical about their team, Right? They, they get all dressed up and weird. Uh, or they uh, Seahawk fans. What about these Seahawk fans? Look at them. They're crazy. They, they call themselves the 12 or the 12ers. Or how about these Georgia Tech fans? I mean, they're not shy at all. They even look a little crazy. Well, halal is like that. Halal is not shy. Halal is not modest. Halal isn't conservative. Halal isn't quiet. Halal isn't Asian, right? After the foundation 
was laid for the rebuilding of the second temple. Here's what it says in Ezra chapter 3. This is so good. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to halal. That's halal there. The Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And verse 11, and they sang responsively, praising halal and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised halal, the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. See that? I mean, they, they couldn't help themselves. They halaled. They, the, verse 10, the priests came forward with trumpets. You got to bring a trumpet in here next week, right? They, the sons of Asa came with cymbals. Verse 11, they sang responsively. And all the people, what did they do? They shouted. They shouted. How? With a great shout. They were loud. They were loud. They were jubilant. Their worship was exuberant. And it came naturally. How could it not come naturally? In fact, in fact, I would say this to you. If Jesus walked into this room right now, what would you do? What would you do if he was here? If he came up here and stood right here, how would you respond? I know how I would. Well, I think I know how I would respond. I think I would fall, fall on my face and start crying like a baby, Right? Or, or maybe you would just, maybe you would just want to touch his feet and 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 wipe his feet with your hair. I mean, I I don't know how would you respond, but I but I know that if he walked into this room, you wouldn't just. I I don't think you would just sit there and go, "Wow, Jesus is here. This is kind of cool," you know. No, Jesus, who died on a cross for your sins, is here. Well. That's how we ought to respond to God in worship. I want to tell you this. Um, worship at our church, you know, uh, people come, usually come, say, I want to hear the speaker. Right? No, no. I always say that worship is the main event, right? So I tell our church, get the, come early, right? Come early so you don't miss the worship. And you've got great worship here. You've got great, you got great teams here, right? Worship is the main event because God is the main event. You want to hear the proclamation of his word? Absolutely. But you want to come and worship the king of kings. And sometimes, uh, you know, it's like when you go to a baseball game, I'm a, I'm a Shohei fan, not a Dodger fan, but a Shohei fan. I mean, what do you do, right? You just scream at the top of your lungs You're like, yay, right? And sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll tell our church, hey, church, let's just give God a shout. You know what the whole place is? They just go crazy like, yay, God. Right? And we're, like I said, we're not Pentecostal or charismatic. But man, we just want to do what the Bible says. So that's it. That's my final lesson. I told our church, I want us to be loud, so loud when people come in, especially an unbeliever comes in, that they're going to want to know, well, who is this God that, they, that these people are so amped up about? Instead of them walking in the room and wondering who died. Like, wow, it's so quiet in here. Somebody must have died. No, Jesus is here, right? Jesus is here. So that's my third lesson. Worship loud, hands raised. 
be exuberant. So to quickly recap, never forget, Savior Community Church, that you, what defines you is not your building, not that you mean a school, what defines you is that you're a family. So just love on each other like crazy. Second, pray desperately. Pray desperately. And don't tell someone you're going to pray for them. Pray for them. Right, right then and there. This week, email somebody a prayer. Text somebody a prayer. Call them and leave a voice message and just pray for them. Before you leave today, pray for somebody. Next week and the week after that and the week after that, as you hear about needs, pray for somebody. Third, we live in a spiritually dark world. It's not okay for one person to go to hell. So be the light. Point others to Jesus. Make it your mission to tell others about Jesus. And fourth, worship loud, right? Worship loud because Jesus is here. Give him everything you've got, all right? Let's close our time in prayer. Father, there is no one like you. There is no one good like you. There is no one more powerful than you. There is no one more loving than you, more merciful. There isn't anyone who knows everything about everyone and who is everywhere at every moment except you. Lord, I pray that you would get a hold of our hearts and the people here at Savior Community Church. What a blessed family this is. And I pray that, the, that in the coming months and years, this place would literally explode with worship and with praise and with prayer and with more people coming to the family because it is all about you and we want to make you known to everyone around us. So, Father, thank you for this very special church and I pray, Father, again, shine your face upon Savior Community Church that in every way it would be what you want it to be. So thank you, Father, so much and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so now we're going to worship. You guys worship with everything.